Welcome to another edition of Innova Health Chat from Innova Health System. Today we're sitting down with two Innova physicians to talk about treatments for gastroesophageal reflux disease, better known as GERD. Dr. Kevin Gillian is a surgeon and is head of the Heartburn Treatment Center at Innova Alexandria Hospital and past president of the American Society of General Surgeons. Dr. Yvonne Hardin is a gastroenterologist and a reflux treatment specialist performing a procedure called TIF, TIF at Innova Fairfax Hospital and Innova Fair Oaks Hospital. So Dr. Gillian, let's start by talking about gastroesophageal esophageal reflux disease, often called GERD or just reflux. Um, obviously, it's something that affects a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons, but um, not everyone with heartburn has reflux. Well, if someone's experienced, heartburn is just basically the way people describe how they're feeling, right? And um, they don't always really understand and don't have the words to explain why they feel bad. They just know they feel bad. So I don't get real hung up when they come to my office about where they say they have heartburn or chest pain or uh, abdominal pain. You know, we try to get to the basics of what's going on structurally, right? And what I find is that most people think that they're in some sort of battle to the death or to the end with them versus the acid. Um, They think that if they take the right pill at the right time, eat the right food at the right time, they walk a perfect path, they lose a certain amount of weight, they sleep with their head a certain angle, that they're going to be okay. And they're really horribly disappointed when they do all those things and they still don't feel good. Um, And so I explained to them that it's not a battle of them versus acid. They probably don't make more acid than their spouse or their friends who don't have these symptoms. It's just the fluid's going the wrong way. The fluid from your stomach is nasty. It doesn't matter. It's not just acid. We don't reflux just acid. We reflux whatever's in our stomach at that time. That can be coffee. It can be water. Even water coming back can feel terrible because it's mixed with a lot of nasty things. My favorite tacos. Yeah, yeah, or no tacos. You know, so it's not necessarily that it's the spicy things that are causing reflux. It's just those things when they come back up a second time are terrible and they're uncomfortable. So we're really dealing with a plumbing issue. The medications are not designed to cure a reflux. They're designed to control or, or moderate some of the symptoms so that they're more comfortable and that maybe the damage that, that the reflux is doing can, can be improved. But as a surgeon, I'm not, when they come, by the time they come to me, they're usually pretty miserable. They're pretty upset. They feel despondent. They don't feel like there's any solution. No one's really explaining things to them. And I feel like sometimes I'm the first person to explain why they feel bad and not just to write them a prescription. So you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but what what do the normal reflux disease symptoms look like? Or are there are Well, you know, it's interesting. I tell people I don't have a particular threshold for who needs to be treated because it's often, it ranges from just a quality of life issue of uh, I feel bad, the pills don't work, I can't eat what I want, all the way up to uh, half of my stomach's in my chest, I've got chest pain, I'm regurgitating at night, I've, I've got scary things that happen when food gets stuck. So it runs this gamut. And then even in the last uh, couple of years, I've seen this acceleration in younger people coming to me who are afraid of being on these medications long term. And they start typing into Google. And I tell them, you know, Dr. Google sends me a lot of patients because they're <laughs> trying to find out what else can I do besides take this pill because I've heard some scary things about pills. Or, I, or they just don't like the idea of taking pills. They're like, I'm 25 years old. I'm 30 years old. I don't want to take these pills forever. 
Um, and so they could try to find another solution, and that's how we open the conversation. And that actually, this is kind of an extra question. You mentioned, you know, the younger. I, I was under the assumption that maybe it got worse as we aged. Is that incorrect? Well, it gets worse as we age if it started when you were young, Got right? It. So if I have someone who has already shown up at the age of 30, and I've got some lady who's had two kids, and she's taking Nexium in the morning and uh, Zantac or Anitidine at night, and she's taking Tums. All Tums are hidden in her car. They're hidden in her purse, and she's 30 years old. She must have and she's, teenagers. And she's asking me what, yeah, and she's asking me what to do, and, and I say, look, you know, you're kind of on a bad... I, trajectory. I don't see anyone who ever goes from once a day dosing to twice a day dosing to twice a day dosing plus a couple other things who suddenly everything gets better and they go the other way. I just see it as a continuous deterioration. Uh, you know, my gastroenterology colleagues may have a different perspective because I see the ones, I see the failures. No one walks in my office saying, I feel great. My reflex is perfect. You know, I see all the failures. So I see a little different perspective, I think. And, and uh, but I think it's probably reflective of why most people come to see physicians anyway. If they they felt great, they wouldn't be in our office. Mm -hmm. All right, so someone comes to the office and, and, you know, is diagnosed with reflux disease. What what are the treatments that we usually start with? Um, In my office, it's different, right? And most people go to whoever they're most comfortable with. Who does, who takes care of them for their flu? Who takes care of them for their... uh, they're cold, you know, who took care primary of the, care you know, stuff. yeah. So they go see their primary care physician. They go see the, the PA that works for their internist or they occasionally they, they jump the line, so to speak, and they go see gastroenterology. They, they say, Oh, I've got this. I've got this. Mayo Clinic says I've got reflux. I need to go see a gastroenterologist. Boom. And then they end up, you know, in Dr. Harden's office, you know, or, uh, they, or they jump even further and say, well, I don't want to do that. I want to go see certain I end people show up in my office who've never had a workup, who've never been placed on medication, who want surgery now. Next week, I'm free. I'm like, no, that's not how this works. You need to, you know, I want to take care. Surgery is a serious thing. We don't want to do it until we have uh, run out of other options. Um because we don't know how long these procedures are going to last. We don't know how long that person's going to live. You know, the first time you get pain in your knee, you don't get a, a joint replacement, right? So we need to extend the non-surgical care of these patients as long as it makes sense. And then when it doesn't make sense, then give them something that's durable, that's going to last, that's safe. Okay. So you mentioned a little bit before when you gave the example of the mom that's on all these different things that um, <clears throat> the trajectory isn't necessarily a good one in that in that example. But what are there any drawbacks to staying on acid-reducing medi- medications well, for long term? In theory, there are. I, I try to not to overplay those when people come to see me. Um, you know, if I have someone who whose symptoms are controlled on PPIs, who has nothing else really going on, I don't take someone who's, you know, 60 years old, who's completely comfortable on their Nexium, who has no symptoms, no esophagitis, no Barrett's. There's no reason to take them off of that medication. Again, let's extend their control as long as possible. But, you know, if you've got someone who's, again, a younger mother, a younger person, certainly not having acid. I mean, we're supposed to have acid in our stomach. Acid's not an enemy. We're supposed to have acid in our stomach. It, we need it as to help us digest our food. We need it to help us absorb calcium. We need it to help us absorb certain uh, electrolytes. And, and, and it's, a, it's supposed to be there's a barrier to infection. So 
It's supposed to be there. We're not supposed to take it out. Mm -hmm. We were never these these medications were never designed initially to be a lifetime therapy. They were designed to be a short-term intense therapy to strip acid out of the stomach so ulcers could heal, so damage could heal. But then take them away. The problem is is that because they've been effective for controlling symptoms from reflux, you can't get them out of your patient's hands once you write the prescription, right? They feel good. They don't want to go back to feeling bad. Um, and so, you know, in that context, if someone started really early, you know, you know before 50, you know, I think that we need to look at, 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 at decreasing them to the, the, the minimally effective dose of whatever they're on, the least intense dose of whatever they're on. I'm often taking people off of double dose medications, putting them on PRN intermittent use based on data from my lab in terms of their acid exposure. Sometimes they're over medicated yeah. and they go see four or five doctors, they end up with four or five prescriptions. Yeah. And so we try to bring that down to something that. reasonable. Uh, and, um, and, um, it, but I'm not going to take it out of the hand of someone if they, if it's working really well, and I'm not going to try to scare them with, you know, you can, you, you can quickly do a Google search and find something wrong with every medication that we prescribe. Yeah. And, and the hot, one of the hot topics now is PPIs and now, you know, Zantac and things like that. So I, I just think it's not fair to scare these people because it, these issues only apply to such a small number. And we've got 40 million people in the U.S. with reflux and, you know, most, mm -hmm. and, and, and the numbers of them that are on medications, it's enormous, probably way too many. But uh, we can certainly address that with each individual as they come in and figure out what makes the most sense. Okay. Dr. Harnan, um, let's talk a little bit more about the surgical options for treating reflux. Um, when do you recommend surgery? What does your typical patient look like? Sure, yeah. So we, uh, as Dr. Gillian mentioned, we see a lot of patients who may have recently started having symptoms, they've had symptoms for a long, long time. They may have been referred by their primary doctor or may have come to see us because, as you mentioned, they may have um, you know, realized that they have likely have GERD and would like to see a specialist about it. And so we'll typically do an evaluation um, and that may simply be talking about um, their symptoms and what they've done to treat that and, and what seems to work, what doesn't. Uh, or we may do further evaluation with endoscopy, so looking with a camera at the esophagus, at the stomach, looking at some of the structural issues, uh, the valve at the bottom of the esophagus, and uh, seeing if there's any damage that's been caused by reflux. Um, so we'll see patients of all ages, um, men, women, uh, young and old, uh, as as you mentioned, sometimes uh, maybe patients experience deterioration over time. They may have been treating this for a long time at home um, with over-the-counter medications, uh, Tums, etc., and they finally get kind of sick and tired of their symptoms and come to see us. Um, there are some risk factors for reflux, so we may you know see patients who may be a little heavier. Uh, so obesity can be a risk factor for reflux. Uh, may maybe they like to eat a certain way that to, that promotes more of their symptoms, uh, refluxing some of the the nastier stuff or things that tend to irritate, um, you know. Um, and and as people get older, sometimes these symptoms um, kind of display themselves more. Maybe they gain weight over time. Maybe uh, some of these anatomic issues with the valve in the bottom of the esophagus um, get a little worse over time. But we'll see patients in their teens all the way up into their nineties, um, mm -hmm. and. Um, 
you know, there's just a, a threshold that uh, these symptoms cross at some point that makes a person want to um, do something about it. So when we do these evaluations, we'll see sometimes that, you know, there's not a lot of damage. Uh, patients may just experience symptoms and may feel kind of uh, that, that heartburn or other symptoms of uh, reflux, but it hasn't caused a lot of damage to the esophagus. There are other patients, maybe they don't even feel much. They may not have a lot of heartburn, may not feel a lot of material in their esophagus, but they clearly have damage. Uh, when we look with a the camera, they may have erosions and ulcers and things in the esophagus. So there's a wide ra range of uh, things we may see as a result of reflux. So when we refer patients, at least from, you know, from my office, from a gastroenterology office, when we refer patients for surgery, it depends a lot on their presentation, so their symptoms, mm -hmm. uh, what we find on the workup, um, how they've done with, with medications. So if, if, for example, if a patient has symptoms we can control with a once a day low dose acid blocking medication like a PPI, like Prilosec or Nexium, mm -hmm. uh, then if symptoms are well controlled and they're happy, they feel good, uh, as we mentioned, these are generally safe, uh, we think, uh, over the long term, but we're finding out more about that. Uh, but at the moment, we think it's safe to continue that. And probably the risks of staying on medication like that uh, are lower than maybe going undergoing a lot of uh, surgery or, or other endoscopic procedures, other things like that, that may may not be worth it to the patient if they're doing well on a, on a once-a-day medication. But if we're using acid-blocking medications uh, and we're increasing the dose, patients are taking it twice a day, they're adding in things like Zantac or Pepsid, uh, still having a lot of breakthrough symptoms, uh, and it's really bothersome, then even if they have no underlying damage that we see on an endoscopy, for example, that they still may be a good candidate to, to be referred for uh, an anti-reflux surgery or um, some of the newer endoscopic you know, anti-reflux procedures that are done. Uh, alternatively, someone may not feel a lot, but we look with an endoscopy and we see they have a lot of damage in the esophagus. Maybe they've developed uh, Barrett's esophagus and that's progressing, so that's sort of a risk factor for esophageal cancer. These maybe other reasons other than symptoms to actually consider doing anti-reflux surgery. Is any of it hereditary? Well, actually, it when we look at, people always ask that, right? They ask, why do, why am I, why, what happened? Why, why me? I work out, I, I, I go to CrossFit, I do all this stuff, I've lost 20 pounds, I still feel like terrible. Yeah. We've actually learned, um, as a surgeon, I look at this stuff structurally, yeah. right? I look at it, and um, we know based on some studies that the, 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 the muscular fibers that encircle the esophagus, the cura, and we talk about hyal hernias and the anatomy. Mm -hmm. In people with reflux, when you biopsy that area and you look at it in a microscope, it's actually different than mm -hmm. in people that are asymptomatic. We actually see some differences in the collagen. I can tell you, op, when I operate, I can tell uh, a really unhealthy uh, uh, hiatal hernia or the muscular fibers are really, you know, falling apart. I can tell how long they've had it sometimes just from, from being in there surgically. So that is, that is, that is something we inherit, but we also inherit how we, how, how, how we overeat. We, 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 you know, from being in a family where everybody's eating too much or where people are lifting too much at work and, and maybe everyone in the family works on a farm and all they do, the guys eat a lot of food and they work really hard and they lift heavy things and that increased pressure, the wear and tear gradually breaks down, you know, uh, a lot of muscle, yeah. a lot of things for them. So, so some of it's 
genetics. A small part of it's probably genetic. A big part of it is just what we do to ourselves. Lifestyle. Yeah, lifestyle, lifestyle, and just you know wear and tear of life. Wear and tear. You know. Yeah. So I can throw this out to both of you guys. I mean, what are the pros and cons of surgery for um, for reflux disease? Generally speaking. Well, generally, uh, like anything, medications or surgical procedures or, or any anything we do in medicine, really, there are risks and benefits. Um, so the pros and cons of surgery is that unlike the medications, I think surgery addresses really more the root underlying reason that people have reflux. So the medications, as Dr. Gillian mentioned, uh, lower the amount of acid in the stomach, and that's not really the underlying problem. It's just what's causing some of the symptoms. So you can use medications and, and improve how people feel, but it's not fixing the valve function that's really at the bottom right. of the esophagus. And really that's, for most people, the root cause of why they're reflexing is that the, the valve is either incompetent, it's not working right, it's it, they have a hiatal hernia, they have some reason why that valve can't close all the way or isn't closing all the way um, most of the time, uh, or it's just relaxing too often and they're getting a lot of reflux. And so I think the pros of surgery is that, or, or any of these procedures is that it, they, it addresses that underlying cause and it can help fix the problem without the need for medication. So we can avoid some of the risks of some of these medications. Yeah, I would say from a patient perspective, I think the thing that they notice immediately is that the, they may be a, someone who their their medications control the burning and the heartburn issues, but it never controls the regurgitation issues. And so when we reestablish a competency to that valve, the regurgitation goes away immediately. Yeah. These people wake up in the recovery room flat on their back with no reflux. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never had an operation not work. In other words, in terms of doing it, does it work? It always works. question is durability. How long is it going to last? And so in most people, the things that I do, whether they're a Nissen or the Lynx procedure, they're, they're meant to be a permanent operation. For most people, they are a permanent operation. For a small number of people over time, they may wear things out again you know, the, 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 we're, we're rebuilding them with the same parts that broke, yeah. right? Like when, when grandma needs a new knee, they throw away the old knee and they give her a new one. Yeah. I can't do that. I've got to rebuild them with what they've got. And yeah. so everybody's different. Some people's tissues are better. So I, the durability of the repair is, is really the only thing I think over time and maybe just the fear everybody has a surgery, but it's the durability that holds people back sometimes from offering this more frequently and that's why i want to hold it back until i think they've run out of options or they're just they basically demand it yeah you mentioned links um you want to talk a little bit about that sure um links is a a modification of an idea that like dr harden was talking about in terms of correcting anatomy right in other words people very rarely just spontaneously start refluxing with normal anatomy. There's something that's broken. Um, I tell my patients all the time that when we all burp, we all belch, we all throw up. So because we all do that, that so-called valve we have is not very strong in any of us, even in normal people. So it doesn't take a lot to push us towards burping, refluxing all the time. It doesn't take a big anatomic change, but it does take change. Um, We've had the same medications for about 30 years for the most part ppis and h2 blockers we've had surgery to address this for about 70 years called one that i do a lot it's called a nissen fund application been around for 70 years 
but we reached sort of a, a, a plateau of, of controlling people. Um, and this, and a lot of that had to do with the side effects of the Nissen procedure, where people were concerned that we've created a valve that, that they can't, they can't uh, burp, they can't belch, they can't throw up, uh, which is true. Uh, I, I definitely think that's true. And some people, if someone is doing all those things, I'd be worried that the operation wasn't done correctly. So and the reason for that is a one-way valve. Okay, What the Lynx procedure allows us to do is to insert um, a, a bracelet uh, a titanium bracelet that has little magnets inside of it around the lowest part of the esophagus. And these little magnetic beads open and close as food goes through because the pressure of the esophagus and the food bowl is going through opens that valve. Uh, but it also works as a two-way valve. If you need to burp or belch or throw up from below, it'll open, let you vent, let it kind of depressurize, let it sort of pop off, and then it closes again. So, so it opens when you need it to open, but it stays closed when you need that reflux control. And so it's dynamic, whereas the Nissen procedure that we do is not dynamic. Um, but in order to do this, we do have to insert a device. This, uh, the Lynx device was designed back in 2002. Um, it was approved for FDA, by the FDA for, for implantation off protocols in uh, 2012. I've been involved with it since 2014. Uh, we've got patients in those FDA protocols from, from way back when it was very early. Um, now we've become basically the leading center on the East Coast. I'm the, tra- I'm the trainer for the whole East Coast for all the surgeons on the East Coast for this procedure. So we're very comfortable with it. Um, the nice thing about it, unlike the Nissen, we don't have to dissect as much on the inside. I don't have to fully mobilize the stomach like I do in, a, in the older procedures because of the nature of this. This is designed to attack or to correct the defect right at the junction between the esophagus and the stomach. And I do that without having to disturb all of these other natural tissue planes. I don't have to grab a lot of things. I don't have to hold a lot of things. And as a consequence, we can do this fairly quickly. We can do it laparoscopically. In fact, I often do it as an outpatient and let people go home the same day. Um, people can eat a regular diet the same day. Uh, their reflux control starts immediately. It's not something we have to kind of see what happens over the next six weeks. They wake up, you know, again, flat on their back. Yeah. I see them in the recovery room, you know, drinking Sprite and eating crackers and they have no reflux. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it is truly, it's one of the things that actually lived up to the promise. Not everything does this, this bit. Well, I know our, our listeners can't see it. I'm holding the links in my hand and it, it is like a little tiny bracelet. I think that's a, the best way to describe it between a bracelet and a slinky. I think I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's kind of like those candy bracelets that yes, kids used to have yes, around their wrists that they exactly get from 7-Eleven, except you replace the, the sugar with that's titanium. That as long <laughs> as my pinky. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually, you know, and it's, yeah. um, I think people are stunned when they come to the office because it's about the size of a quarter. Yeah. And and it and people worry like, well, is it like a lap band? It's like, no, it's not like a lap band for bariatric surgery. It's not designed to be restrictive in any way. You eat a regular diet. I tell people it's sort of like a ring or a watch in yeah. that if it's the right size, you don't feel it. And we work very, very, very hard to make sure that it's the right size. You shouldn't feel it at all once it's in place. Um, and how long does it last? It's titanium. It'll last. It'll outlast the patient. Wow. You know. Wow. It'll certainly outlast their surgery. Is there ever? Is there? Well, is there ever a situation where it would need to be replaced? Very rarely. Very rarely. Um, 
because it's a newer procedure and there's certainly a little bit of anxiety that happened in the first you know few years of the procedure when patients would complain about some difficulty swallowing or really complain about a lot of things the threshold for just getting it out was a lot a lot higher um and so and and you could do that because it was an elective procedure it's not like a heart valve that you can't take out um and so people would just take it out and so early on the removal rates were about four percent they're now down to about one percent i would say that's consistent with what we see in in my practice as well and it's it's for a variety of reasons um but universally they're handled without any big deal it's still basically an out even to take it out is basically an outpatient procedure so you mentioned that you're an uh the trainer basically you have Mm -hmm. they have to come through you if they're on the east coast so you've done a lot of these yes ma'am um, tell me about the, the feedback you're hearing from patients. Um, I, I get patients sent to me by other patients. That's probably the best thing I can say about it. In other words, uh, other family members, neighbors watch, you know, that, that first person go through the workup, go through the operation, and then they come in and say, okay, you know, I was supposed to come see you three years ago, but I didn't because I'm afraid <laughs> of surgery, but Miss Smith did so well. I got to come talk to you about this. Now, it doesn't mean every patient gets a lynx. It doesn't mean every person's appropriate for it. We do a very careful workup. Again, they have to have, they have to meet certain criteria. Um, most people do. Some people don't. But if they have reflux that is refractory to medical management, we can take care of it across the spectrum. Whether it's a, a small hiatal hernia or their whole stomach's in their chest, I can still handle it with a minimally invasive procedure. But I can also add to that nearly 25 years of experience of doing this. I've done thousands and thousands of these anti-reflex procedures, and um, I've got a great team. And so we can get them all fixed if they really have the disease. And that's a big part of my practice is to actually confirm that they really have it, to make sure that, you know, maybe they're on twice a day medication for a disease they don't really have. So we wanted to find the problem, make sure that we know before we make our first incision that they're going to get better. That's very important. Uh, I like that. Um, Dr. Harnden, let's talk about this procedure called TIF, T-I-F. Yes, so TIF uh, stands for transoral incisionless fundoplication. I'm glad you could say it because I was, I was, that's why I threw that to you because I couldn't pronounce it. <laughs> it's a fancy way of basically uh, saying that through the mouth with a camera, we can go down into the, into the stomach uh, doing an endoscopic approach and try to recreate that valve or fix the valve at the bottom of the esophagus from the inside. Uh, This has been an idea that evolved over time uh, and early on was really not performed in a way that would uh, recreate that valve quite in the way that it is now. Uh, The device that's used um, is, is passed through the mouth down the esophagus into the stomach and using the camera that we, that we normally use for endoscopy. Uh, we can then see the bottom of the esophagus, see the valve down there, and essentially fold uh, the, the top part of the stomach around, uh, sort of fold it around the backside of the esophagus and tack it in place with sutures, uh, or H fasteners as they're called with this device. So this is a way to try to emulate uh, sort of a, a, a version of the of almost like the Nissen uh, procedure that Dr. Gillian had mentioned, um, although it's sort of modified from that. So the Nissen can be done in, uh, surgically uh, to make a 360 degree valve around the esophagus, um, or it can be modified to do it partially. And so this uh, is probably more 
analogous to the partial fundoplication. Got it. So it's it's um, sort of taking the fr- the the two two uh, sides around the esophagus, bending them around the back, and tacking them in place. So how do you decide who's a good candidate for that? So it's very similar in terms of the workup to uh, what Dr. Gilly mentioned in terms of making sure that someone's appropriate to undergo an anti-reflux procedure. We want to make sure it's going to help them. So some patients uh, may come in with symptoms that may be due to reflux or maybe not. We see patients with typical reflux symptoms, heartburn, regurgitation of stuff they feel in their mm-hmm. esophagus after eating. Uh, maybe that gets better with acid blocking medications. Those patients are like very likely to have true underlying GERD and we can do some tests to, to prove that. Um, but there are other patients who come in with atypical symptoms or maybe they have heartburn and it doesn't respond to any acid blocking medications or maybe they have cough or sore throat and those symptoms can be caused by GERD certainly uh, but could also be caused by other problems, allergies or even asthma, uh, you know, GERD, some GERD can, can mimic some of these other mm-hmm. problems. Um, so it's important really to pin that down. So yeah. the way we, we work that up is through, generally speaking, um, potentially endoscopic evaluation first, so looking with a camera, looking at the structure of the valve, making sure that this is, you know, a, a case that would respond well to that kind of procedure. Um, and then doing some acid monitoring, so you can actually um, do a few different types of uh, ambulatory monitoring. So you can do uh, a test where someone takes a device home with them to measure the acid in the esophagus, and you can see when and how much acid they have uh, reg- uh, refluxing. Um, and sometimes we can even evaluate the esophagus in terms of its function, in terms of how they're swallowing, to make sure that we won't cause a problem or that they don't have some underlying issue with moving food down that will make worse. Yeah. So once once we do that, and we know that somebody is likely to respond well to this, so um, that's when we would then. Uh, consider the procedure and in some ways um, some of the same criteria apply although I would say TIF is a more um, is a little bit more limited in terms of the range of different types of anatomy that we can deal with uh, because it is all through a camera going through the mouth uh, we're working at a distance we don't have the same ability to mobilize the different tissues so it's not something you would want to perform for example on, on a patient who has a, a larger hiatal hernia so hiatal hernia is important we've been talking about that that's a, a very common reason that that is a cause of reflux because it sort of disrupts that valve at the bottom of the esophagus so for someone with a small hiatal hernia less than two centimeters ideally even smaller than that maybe they just have a valve that opens and closes you know too often that allows for reflux the TIF procedure could be a good option so they, they can um, come in to get an evaluation and we can do uh, the procedure it takes about uh, 45 minutes um, and generally uh, is done also as an outpatient so we usually will send patients home the same day that's what I was going to ask. It much like, I mean, regardless of both procedures, I mean, I'm sure what I'm hearing is the importance of the initial consultation and figuring out exactly where these patients are is really important in determining I think what they need. It's really important to make sure that someone will benefit from the procedure we're going to be doing. Right. So, for example, when you do a, 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 there's a lot of overlap here because we're basically all focusing on this on that valve at the bottom of the esophagus. But if that's not the problem, then uh, you know, then you, you'd hit for a patient to continue to have symptoms and have gone through all this and not have the benefit. Well, we're getting close to being out of time, but um, any good before and after stories that um, we can talk about without <laughs> violating HIPAA or anything? I, I love to try and put something that well, folks can relate to. I think 
I'll give you an example with respect to the links. I've got two colleagues, uh, one in Texas, one in Colorado, very well-known surgeons, general surgeons, who have been taking care of people for years. Uh, like me, they're basically, one of them, I literally say he's the Dr. Gillian from, from, from Boulder, Colorado. He does the same thing I do. He has the same kind of workup. Um, but never had surgery. He had horrible reflux. So did this other surgeon. They've never wanted to put themselves through the Nissen procedure. They both put themselves through the Lynx procedure. They had a third colleague of mine do their operation. I'm sure they were the worst patients <laughs> on the planet. But they both, you know, it's kind of like the guy who bought Gillette, right? He liked the razor, he bought the company. And, <laughs> and uh, for a surgeon to, um, to do this and have it done to themselves at this stage when it is, you know, we've, we've put in about, um, at this stage, there's been about uh, 25,000 implants done over the last, um, and it's been accelerating. Every year, it's, it's about double what it was the year before. And that uh, statistic is here or? Nas- uh, 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 worldwide. 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 Uh, but our center is in the top 10 in the country and has been since it was established. Um, and um, people come from other states to come see us. You know, I, had, I saw uh, someone from North Carolina in my office today who's got surgery scheduled for, for a week from now. And so um, experience certainly counts. This is uh, not something, and you know, this procedure is not taught to surgeons who don't have experience. Everybody who wants to do it can't do it. We're, we, don't, we don't teach them. Yeah. They have to actually show some competency and some, some, some dedication to foregut surgery. Uh, so I think if you get a surgeons are pretty skeptical bunch. And so when surgeons actually allow this to happen to themselves, uh, that shows a lot of faith. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything you want to add? Yeah. I've, I mean, I've had a, a number of patients who are just extremely happy. I had a patient the other day who followed up and gave me a hug at the end of the procedure, at the end of the visit, just saying how, how uh, happy she was with the results of the procedure. Probably life-changing for some yeah. folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's great. I mean, you know, um, it's very nice to work in this area with experienced surgeons and um, some of the state-of-the-art technology that we have because uh, we really have access to uh, tools and care that we don't necessarily have in all parts of the country. And, and um, so it's great to work as part of a, a team with cutting-edge um, procedures and, and facilities. So as we get people from all over the state and all over the, all over the area coming for these uh, workups and consultations yeah. and leave uh, generally, I think, very happy. Well, I know you two are very busy folks, and I appreciate your time today for joining us for this podcast. But if our listeners have any questions about surgical treatment for reflux, um, our experts can provide the answers and help you find relief from heartburn. ANOVA offers a comprehensive evaluation, education, and treatment program for people with reflux. To learn more about our experts and our treatment options, please visit ANOVA.org backslash heartburn. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us.